0: Hello and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of Beyond the Scope. Today our host, Dr. Sarah Jang of Duke Health, speaks with Dr. Rebecca Johnson, Chief Executive Officer for the American Board of Pathology. Dr. Johnson is also a former treasurer, trustee, and president of the American Board of Pathology. We'll hear their conversation about Dr. Johnson's work with the American Board of Pathology and the evolutions in board certification and maintenance of certification. Now here's your host, Dr. Jang. Hello
1: and welcome to PathPod. Today we're doing our segment called Beyond the Scope, where we speak to pathologists about their pursuits and interests in and outside of pathology. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah J. You can follow me on Twitter at S-A-R-A underscore J-I-A-N-G. I am so thrilled today to have as our guest, Dr. Rebecca Johnson. Dr. Johnson is the Chief Executive Officer for the American Board of Pathology and a former trustee, treasurer, and president of the AB Path. Prior to her position with the AB Path, Dr. Johnson was Chair of Pathology and Clinical Laboratories and the Pathology Residency Program Director at Berkshire Health Systems in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. She is a past member and chair of the ACGME Pathology Residency Review Committee. She has been a delegate to the AMA for over 20 years and was past chair of the Pathology Section Council. She serves as Secretary-Treasurer of the American Board of Medical Specialties and on their Board of Directors and Executive Committee. Dr. Johnson has received numerous awards, including the College of American Pathologists, Distinguished Service Award, President's Honors, Outstanding Communicator Award, and Certificate of Meritorious Achievement. Welcome, Dr. Johnson.
2: Thank you, sir. It's nice to be
1: with you. I'm so excited to have you here on the show. I know we're going to learn a lot about the inner workings of the ABP and about organized medicine because you have so much wonderful experience in all those areas. But kind of starting from the beginning,
2: I'd love to hear about you know where did you grow up? Well, I was born in a rural town in southwest Minnesota, Slayton, Minnesota. I was born during the county fair, which of course is the biggest deal in a small town. I spent my uh, young years in Illinois, and then when I was nine years old, moved back to Minnesota to a farm where I lived with my aunt and uncle and four cousins. Graduated high school there, and then went on to college and medical school at Southern Illinois University. Fabulous, fabulous school. And completed my residency at Hartford Hospital in Connecticut. Fabulous training program. And I uh, did a visiting fellowship at National Institutes of Health in Hematopathology. And when you were growing up, did you always know that you wanted to be a doctor? No. Like most kids, I thought about a lot of different things. In fact, when I was really young, I thought I wanted to be a hairdresser because I loved, <laughs> I loved playing with hair and styling hair. So maybe that's what I could have ended up doing. But I always loved sciences and biology. And you know, I was the kid in biology class that really was interested in dissecting the frog, whereas everybody else was... Ugh. And of course, being on a farm, I was exposed to evisceration of animals. And I thought, wow, guts, they're really interesting. That's really fascinating. And uh, being on a farm in the summertime, part of our duties were cleaning chickens to put in the freezer to get us through the winter. So I guess that was my first exposure to anatomy. And I just found it fascinating.
1: I think that's really a great experience is to be able to have those experiences early on where you do get that exposure to anatomy. I think a lot of what happens in modern societies, for better or worse, is that we're so far removed from where food comes from. The way in which most folks in this country interact with food is it's packaged up in a styrofoam shelf at the supermarket. You're so far removed from the fact that a lot of the food that we eat comes from farms, from animals. And that's something that I feel like maybe is
2: a little bit of a disservice in terms of kind of understanding the whole process. Absolutely. You know, having grown up on a farm and you know, being in touch with that. I've always said that anybody who wants to eat meat needs to see animals being butchered. And I think we'd have a lot more vegetarians in the world.
1: I think about that too, actually, I'm from China. And in China, there's a tradition of live poultry markets and food markets. So you would go to the market, there would be live chickens and quails and eels, and you would point at one, they would take it and kind of clean it, kill it, it And so there was that connection of, well, you know, if you're going to eat this meat, you understand that it's coming from something that was alive, just, you know, maybe a few minutes or a few hours ago. And I agree, maybe we would have more vegetarians. So gosh, that was kind of a digression there. So when did you come to the decision that going to medical school was something you wanted to do?
2: Well, again, in college, I I wanted to do something in health sciences. And actually, I was originally accepted into nursing school at the University of Minnesota, which in those days was about as competitive as getting into medical school. But being young and stupid and having a boyfriend who was moving to Illinois, I decided to move to Illinois along with him. And so ended up deciding that I would go to medical school. And again, went to Southern Illinois University, which was a brand new medical school. I think my class was the third to graduate. And at that time, there were seven medical schools in Illinois, all of them in the Chicago area. And there was a severe shortage of physicians in downstate Illinois. So the state legislature said, we're going to create a downstate medical school with a mission to train doctors who will practice in rural communities. And they've been extremely successful. They have one of the highest rates of their medical students going into primary care specialties. So it has been a great success. Of course, one of the failures going, into- <laughs> you know, not going into primary care. But even so, hopefully I've made my school proud. And one thing I am very proud of is in 2010, I was named the SIU School of Medicine alumna of the year.
1: Wonderful. Yeah. And I think that definitely speaks to even if you're not necessarily going into primary care, the impact you've made on the field of pathology has been huge. So it may be a slight loss for them and definitely a win for us in pathology. And ultimately, I would argue a win for them as well. So that's great. So how did you get interested in pathology? What was your path towards path as it were?
2: Well, I was pretty naive when I started medical school, not having anybody in the medical profession. And I thought everybody became a family practitioner because growing up in a small town, that was what I saw was uh, general medicine. So I thought that's what I would do. But again, I really liked the basic science. I liked the laboratory. I did some electives in pathology and uh, fascinated by doing autopsies. And also I had a great role model. The chair of the Department of Pathology was Dr. Grant Johnson, no relation, but we would divide our class up twice a week into four small groups for discussion and working with faculty. And I just happened to be in Grant Johnson's section. So when we would be going through looking at, in those days, codachromes of different things. He would invariably call on me because I was the one name of a student that he could remember. (laughs) So (laughs) I always had to be prepared for pathology. But he was a great role model, as were uh, the other pathologists in the department. Our associate dean was a pathologist. And uh, I just thought, you know, this is, this is really what I want to do. I found taking care of patients very rewarding, but also I found it very emotionally taxing to see really good, nice people with terrible diseases and, and dying. So I thought pathology was a good place for me, uh, you know, a good bridge between basic science and bedside medicine.
1: I think that really speaks to the, the way in which a lot of people come to interact with pathology is that we're teaching their medical school courses. And so a lot of students, I think the interaction they have with pathologists is in small groups, teaching anatomy. And so I think that really emphasizes that that's an opportunity if you're out there, you know, whether you're a resident or your faculty teaching those medical students, you know, that's a real chance to show off our field a little bit, right. And I'm not saying that I'm always trying to recruit people to pathology, but I'm always trying to recruit people to pathology, you know, whether it's yeah, right. So, I, you know, if I'm on frozens, actually, I was on frozens yesterday. And often, you know, medical students come in with our surgeons and two of our surgeons came in, there were no medical students with them. And I was like, come on, what's the deal? You're supposed to bring me the medical students so I can recruit them because it really is it's an opportunity to show them what we do. And a lot of us don't go into medical school thinking we're going to be pathologists, but it really is. It's this hidden gem. And I'm so grateful that I was able to interact with the amazing pathologists actually here at Duke, where I've stayed to introduce me to this field, because it really is something that not a lot of people have on their radar coming in.
2: Right. Well, one of the things that that I like to do, again, I've always been a believer in organized medicine. And so, for example, our Hillsborough County Medical Association has three dinners a year. And they always invite the medical students at no charge for a free dinner. So you know, that attracts plenty of medical students. Mm -hmm. And uh, they ask people like me to pair off with several of them. So you know, I'll buy them a glass of wine or a beer or a soda and uh, talk to them about pathology. And one of the things I always say to them is pathologists are the happiest physicians I know. They really, they really are. (laughs) We don't have some of the hassles that Our other colleagues in medicine
1: have. Yeah, yeah, it's so funny. I don't know if you've seen. I think we've been getting a lot of good Twitter PR from Dr. Glaucon Flecken, who's on TikTok and Twitter, and he had this video of what it's like when you go down to the pathology department, and the pathologist is like, "It's a medical student. Welcome. Come on in. Have some Swiss Miss. Hey, cancel grand rounds. We've got a medical student. You want to see (laughs) these?" And I think that you know, I really felt I felt seen when that video came out because I do think every time a medical student comes in the Rosen lab, I'm like, Oh, welcome. Hey, look at this mitosis. Look at these features. Have you thought about pathology? It's a great field, you know, and I definitely feel we're trying to counter that stereotype of pathologists being kind of in the basement and kind of being, you know, not very friendly. Maybe we've gone a little bit too, too far that we're so overly (laughs)
2: friendly that our our colleagues. Yeah, Yeah, we're definitely not the introverts that we get accused of being
1: yeah and even if we're introverts, we're friendly introverts who love to teach and,
2: and right. share and there's a, and being nerdish is popular nowadays, so yeah, yeah, no, I mean,
1: nerds around the world, right? <laughs> just you know, just look at the situation with the pandemic where the nerds are the ones leading the way in vaccinations and the science. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked a little bit about some of your childhood dreams. What would you be if you couldn't be a pathologist? what do you think you would be doing?
2: Oh gosh. That's really hard to say. I think I would definitely be doing something in the healthcare field. So I actually started in optometry school before I got my acceptance into medical school. So I suppose I could have ended up an optometrist or I could have gone back and gone into nursing, but certainly it would have been something in healthcare. That's what I really like to do.
1: Oh, and definitely optometry has a lot of use of scopes and lenses. So maybe it just speaks to your desire to kind of work with your eyes. I feel like it's all kind of visual, right? Could be. Great. So moving on to your more recent career, I'd love to hear about your experience you know, with the American Board of Pathology. How did you get interested in it? How did you get started?
2: Well, I was a residency program director a department chair. So I was always very interested in graduate medical education and put myself forth to be on the ACGME review committee, which I did, and also was in leadership of PRODs, the program director's section of the Association of Pathology Chairs, and I was chair of the PRODs section. And so when there was an opening on the American Board of Pathology, I expressed interest to several of the trustees, and they were looking for someone with kind of a hybrid of medical education graduate medical education as well as private practice which you know unusual i was in that kind of situation so i joined the the board as a trustee in 2000 two, and was a trustee for 11 years, served as treasurer and president. And then when Betsy Bennett decided to retire, I thought, well, you know, I've been in the same institution for 22 years. I've been a chair for 20 years. It's probably a good time for a change for me, as well as a change for my department and for, for my associates. So I made the move to the board. And it's been a wonderful nine years, so much change. And that's really exciting. That's something that I've always done is embrace change and always look for ways to make things better. So we've done a lot of different things, you know, with primary certification, particularly with COVID, we had to pivot to offer our exams remotely. And now this year we're using a commercial exam center to give our exams. So that has been a big challenge, but very well received by our candidates And then, of course, with our diplomates, our continuing certification program continues to grow and to evolve. When the program was being set up, it was while I was a trustee, and I know Dr. Bennett was very cognizant of making a program that was relevant and as least burdensome as possible while still meeting the ABMS requirements for continuing certification, or in those days called maintenance of certification. So the really exciting things that we've done with that is we've expanded the the sorts of activities that our diplomates can use to meet their improvement in medical practice requirements. But the really big thing is we've gone away now from the every 10-year exam, which people hated, even though our philosophy was... You've already attained initial certification, which is the high bar for entry into the profession. So with continuing certification examination, we really just want to be assured that you've kept basic information that you need to practice safely and effectively. And we published study guides and the pass rates have been very high as we would expect and as we would want. But the really exciting thing, of course, is our new longitudinal assessment. Called AB Path Cert Link. And Sarah, I know you're familiar with it, but maybe some of your listeners aren't. So, our time limited diplomats participate in this program, and every quarter, every three months, they're sent an email where they're asked to log in and answer 15 questions, they can design their assessment to reflect what they do in practice. So they do have a core that they have to answer to maintain their primary certification. So you know, most diplomates are APCP certified, so they get 20% of their questions In general, AP, CP, management, regulatory, those kinds of things. And then, if they have one subspecialty certification, they'll get 20% of their questions in that subspecialty. If they have more than one subspecialty, they're required to have 10% of their questions in each subspecialty. And then the rest is selective because we really want this to be relevant and meaningful to their practice and help them improve in practice. So they can log in anytime and answer one question, five questions, all 15 questions. They have five minutes for every question and they can use any resource except another person. And they get immediate feedback on whether they got it right or wrong and also receive a critique that is an explanation about the question references, and they can comment to us on questions. So we get a lot of feedback, most of it positive, but you know, sometimes that's a really dumb question. Why are you asking me this? So we do take that feedback and continually try to improve the quality of the questions and and the relevance of the questions. So we actually have 32 practice areas that people can select from. So we have all of our 11 subspecialties as practice areas. But then again, in anatomic pathology uh, and clinical pathology, we have all of those specialty areas. So GI, GU, GYN, uh, lung, placenta. So 15 questions times 32 practice areas, you can imagine how ambitious it has been for us to have sufficient number of items to allow our diplomates to design what's relevant. And so now in July, we're going to be migrating to a new platform. So it'll be CertLink 2.0. It should be fairly transparent to our diplomates, and it'll be much better for us on the administrative side. So far, all we've really tracked is participation, and that's all that we've required for people to maintain their certification. But beginning in January 2022, we will begin to track performance. We have set a performance standard of getting 60% of the questions correct, which we think is very reasonable, and it will be a cumulative performance. So, you know, if you have one bad quarter, you can make up for it in the next quarter. And again, we, we really believe that our diplomates will do well and will perform well. And if people do have difficulty, you know, this is a way to identify it and for them to fill in their knowledge gaps. So we're pretty excited about it. And the feedback has been very positive.
1: Yeah, definitely from the perspective of someone who's been involved, I think as a pilot, I appreciate the rollout process where we've had the ability to use it, get familiar with the system and get used to those reminders. Because I will say, and I'm going to confess to this on air, that for those of us who are used to scoring well on standardized testing, if you forget to answer the questions from a quarter, it really drops your cumulative performance and be a little bit humbling. But it's great that we're kind of used to getting these reminder emails, please keep sending reminder emails. I know those are very helpful. And to have that cumulative performance moving forward, because it it does get so busy sometimes. And the other aspect of it that I think is really appreciated is the fact that it's open book. And that's so much more approximates what it's like in actual practice if i have a question that i don't know the answer to in actual practice i'm not just going to guess blindly and put some random diagnosis i'm going to go to the literature go to my textbooks and look, look things up so i think that's very helpful and again is much more reflective of what we actually do in practice
2: And that's the thing about uh, CertLink is while, you know, we are required again by the standards for continuing certification to do an assessment of medical knowledge. This is also a formative assessment, not just summative, but we want it to be formative so that people can learn while they're demonstrating their medical knowledge.
1: Yeah, and I appreciate that, at least in the references I've seen, a lot of them are pretty open access. So anyone can get access to the articles or chapters or the resources that are listed in the critiques from the items. So I think that's really nice, because not all of us are at institutions that have access to all the journals.
2: Yeah, I'm always gratified by the number of people who say that they go to those references, they read them, that they learn a lot from from the CertLink activity. So that's very gratifying. It's meeting the needs that we were hoping it would meet.
1: Absolutely. And I think that really speaks to the thought that went into the process that you're trying to create something that is going to be helpful. I mean, obviously, it's something we have to do. It's a requirement, but to make it something that's going to be realistic, to be practical, to be less onerous. I mean, as much as we all um, love those trips to Tampa <laughs> to take, take the tests, I think, especially now that um, we've moved so much to virtual having that CertLink, it's just so much easier. When did the idea come about for the, the link system or how did that come about?
2: Well, you know, it's always good to learn from the other boards. So some years ago, it was actually the American Board of Anesthesia that came up with what they called their Mocha Minute, which was maintenance and certification assessment. And they would every week send out, I think it was one question every Monday morning, and their diplomates had one minute to answer. Oh, Not my. They had one minute, but... They tried to make it walk-around knowledge type of things, and it was, again, so well received that after a couple of years, it became a permanent change to their continuing certification program, and they required all their diplomates. So we've had a phase in and a pilot phase. So again, starting in January 2022, all of our diplomates will be required to participate in CertLink, and that 10-year exam is, is going to go away. We'll still have to keep some sort of exam for people that need it for licensure. You know, there are some states that require if you are applying for a new license, you have to have taken some sort of secure exam within the past 10 years which could be USMLE step 3 but i don't think any pathologist I, I don't i don't think
1: you're going to get a lot of people uh, <laughs> lining up to take that option honestly right
2: so so we will have some sort of general exam similar to what we had when we had voluntary recertification which went away in 2014 but you know again we want to be supportive of our diplomates and just one other thing i want to say about continuing certification you talked about how people don't really like to do it, or they feel that it's intrusive or whatever. You know, I say to those people, this is a wonderful credential, you know, that you can say to your colleagues, and you can say to your medical staff and to your patients that you are keeping up that you are someone that is a professional and that you're committed to showing improvement in practice and maintaining or increasing your medical knowledge. So continuing certification, I think is a great credential, just like initial board certification is a wonderful credential. Yeah. And I
1: think that taking some of the barriers out of participation, such as, you know, removing the need to travel, I think that's very, very helpful because I do think that part of people's complaints are, you know, taking time, taking money, traveling, you know, the cost and taking the time out of your busy schedule. So I think fitting it into and I'm really, really glad by the way that that pathology, we're not given a minute every single Monday, because that sounds a little bit stressful, honestly, (laughs) though I like the name mocha minute. It's very, you know, take your little coffee break and take your uh, MOC as well. But I think I think that's that it's moving in the right direction. So you talked a little bit about some of the experiences you've had on the ABMS working with other specialties. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the similarities and differences in how certification works for our field versus some of our our
2: other colleagues? Well, I I guess the biggest difference with initial certification, all of the boards have written examinations, but some of the boards do have oral examinations, and it's primarily the surgical subspecialties. And, you know, that's, they have an opportunity there to assess communication and interpersonal skills, which is something that boards that just give written exams really can't do. And so we rely on our program directors to say that our candidates are competent in those areas. So that's probably the biggest difference with initial certification. And, and again, some of the surgical boards require that their candidates have to have been in practice for a period of time before they can take that second part of their examination so that they have case logs. But that's, I think, the big difference. In terms of continuing certification, there is a lot of variability among the boards. We we still have certain aspects. So there's professionalism and professional standing. So, you know, everybody has to have a full unrestricted license. There is lifelong learning and self-assessment, which for many of the boards is accepting ACCME accredited CME, which our board does. And now we no longer require SAMs. The third part, of course, is the assessment of medical knowledge, judgment and skills, which was the 10-year exam and now is longitudinal assessment. And then the fourth part, Part is improvement in medical practice. And pathology has always been way ahead of the other boards in that because quality improvement, quality assurance has always been in the DNA of pathologists. It's, It's what we do all the time in our daily practice. So it was very easy for us to come up with ways for our diplomates to demonstrate how they were doing improvement, whereas some of the other boards, they're tearing their hair out, trying to figure out how they do that, particularly for their independent private practice physicians, you know, who have no relationship to a hospital, maybe solo practice, it's a little more difficult for those physicians to figure out how to demonstrate improvement in practice. So I think we've been lucky in pathology that it's been that part has been really easy for us and
1: relevant. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that, because really, that would be a challenge because you do have physicians in so many different types of practice settings and, you know, trying to find something that is as close to a one size fits all, I guess, as possible. So talking about challenges, you've been leading an organization that certifies pathologists and, you know, not Not everybody gets super excited about certifications, right? And so can you speak a little bit about some of the challenges in kind of navigating that as a leader?
2: Well, I think probably the the second greatest day in my professional life, the the best one was when I got my acceptance to medical school. But the second best one was when I got that letter that said, congratulations, you are a diplomate of the American Board of Pathology. So, you know, it is a rite of passage. And it is painful, but again, it's a remarkable credential. And I think most pathologists, most physicians are very, very proud to be able to say that they are board certified, that they met that high achievement and high bar to become certified. And it, and it is a gold standard. The public doesn't often understand the difference between certification and licensure, but they do understand when you say, would you want your doctor to be board certified? Oh, yes, even though they may not understand all the nuances of that. Oh, yes, I want to go to a board certified position. Thinking back to when I got, got the letter saying that I had passed, and that
1: was definitely a great day. I will say there was, I think, for, I don't know if it was cytopathology or my, my primary boards, but there was some issue where I went to the website, and I couldn't pull up my letter, and I had a moment of just abject panic, and this is all credit to the ABP staff. I picked up the phone, I called the ABP number and one of the folks at the ABP very, very kindly kind of walked me through the issue. I think maybe I had uploaded some wrong PDF of my license and solved the issue. But I will say just on air again, a shout out to the folks who work at the ABP because every time I've reached out with a question, whether I was late to submit some paperwork uh, or, gosh, I'm really making myself sound uh, (laughs) delicious. On this podcast, the folks have been so helpful in straightening things out for me. So, just a shout out to anyone who's listening. If you ever run into problems or questions, reach out to the ABP. They have actual human beings who are super nice and super helpful. So, you know, thank you to them for for making my interactions uh, with the board as painless as as possible.
2: Well, thanks for that recognition because our staff they really are wonderful. And they are there to help our candidates and and our diplomates. In fact, one of our most recent added positions is a diplomate success specialist. So again, you know, we're we're there to help everyone succeed. And thank you for recognizing staff because they are really wonderful. It's grown amazingly. That's another one of the big changes. When I started in uh, 2013, there were 10 of us in the office, all women, Now we are up to 18 and we have six men. So (laughs) we have some gender diversity in our office. So things have changed. We've brought in some IT expertise. So you're going to see the pathway be totally redesigned to be just better dashboard and knowing where you are with your continuing certification and we're redoing our website. So things are going to continue to improve well
1: awesome well thank you for setting all that up for us and making it easier again to keep track of everything and just to have a unified website and email reminders so so helpful for those of us who uh, might otherwise have a, a tendency to be a little bit delinquent
2: we know everybody's busy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they yeah. have more to be concerned with than just the board
1: yeah yeah, so thanks for helping to make it streamlined. So shifting gears a little bit, you know, I want to talk a little bit about some of the other work that you've done in organized medicine because I think the first time that we met was actually in the context of an AMA meeting when I was one of the, the resident delegates. Can you speak a little bit about your involvement with the AMA and organized medicine?
2: Well, yeah, you know, I've always believed in the role of organized medicine. So both at my local medical society at the state pathology organizations, state medical associations, and of course, nationally at at the AMA. So I just urge people to support those organizations to join those organizations because they represent you. And in Washington, in particular, you talk to legislators and they say, you know, you doctors, each one of you speak your specialties, you come to us wanting this and you want that. There's nobody that speaks unified for all physicians. They said when the American Bar Association comes to town, they talk to the issues of all lawyers. But you guys, you need to be a little more united. And that's what the AMA can do for us. I know there's been a lot of disagreement with the stands of the AMA in the past. It, it has been a very conservative organization, but it's changing. It's changing remarkably primarily because of the young physicians that are involved and helping to set policy at the AMA. The other thing to remember is the president and CEO of the AMA is a pathologist, Dr. Jim Madera, who also was a trustee on the American Board of Pathology. So the AMA is an interesting organization. Their House of Delegates sets policy. They meet twice a year, as you know, and it's probably the most painful democratic that's <laughs> organization I've ever been involved in. But in the end, they do the right thing and uh, they speak for all physicians. So, you know, I really encourage people to join the AMA, to contribute to AMPAC, and of course, join your specialty societies, your specialty organizations. In pathology, we're blessed as well as cursed by having so many specialty organizations, and they're all wonderful and they all do very good and sometimes different things, but they do compete for our dues dollars. It would be nice to see more collaboration among those organizations.
1: Yeah. And I think one thing that, you know, wasn't really clear to me before I started getting involved with AMA is, you know, when people talk about organizations like the AMA or, you know, other organizations, it's like they are this nebulous they and I don't like what they do. But what they is, is actually a group of fellow physicians getting together in a room, like you say, and it is a little bit painful to to talk about the policies and vote on policies and discuss the policies. And one of the things that became very clear to me is if you don't like what they are doing, and you are not participating, then, you know, in some ways, you kind of don't have a right to complain. Because if you wanted to impact what organization is doing, you need to be involved, right? And whether that is as simple as joining and having your membership or getting involved to try to run as a delegate or coming to the annual meeting or being a part of the meeting, you know, that involvement, if you're not even willing to engage, then you shouldn't be particularly surprised if the nebulous they doesn't move in the direction that maybe you want them to.
2: I absolutely agree.
1: Couldn't have said it better myself. The other thing that I wanted to point out is that the representation that pathology has at the big house of medicine within the AMA is tied to how many members of a given organization like the CAP or USCAP are also members of AMA. So literally by joining the AMA as a pathologist, who is also a member of these organizations, you're actually increasing the representation of pathology in the house of medicine.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) Representation by each of the specialty organizations is based on their AMA membership.
1: I think that if you're not, and again, it is a big ask to to maybe get involved in the parliamentary procedure at the AMA. But, you know, if you're interested in helping pathology have a really strong voice at the in the bigger house of medicine, being an AMA member, as well as uh, being a member of CAP, USCAP, ASC, ASCP is a great and relatively easy way to do it just by joining. Obviously I'm a little bit yeah. biased, but, but and, I it's, yeah. It's and important. you
2: meet you really meet some fabulous people. I mean, it, it really is the leadership in medicine. Absolutely.
1: I remember just having really great engagement with residents from other specialties and talking about policies at the residents and fellows section. I think it's really important for us to have a voice there because we all want to be part of the process. And we as pathologists know how central we are to medicine. But if again, you don't have a seat at the table, then your views, your input, they're not going to be taken into consideration when these policies are being made. Well, Getting off my soapbox a little bit, let's talk about some of your interests outside of pathology. What do you do in your probably very limited free time with all the hats that you wear?
2: Yeah, things are pretty busy. That is, that's true. Well, before the pandemic, we loved to travel. So we've been to some great places. We've been to Antarctica. We've been to Machu Picchu. We've been to the Galapagos Islands. We've been to the Arctic, many countries in, in Europe. And right before the pandemic, that Christmas and New Year's, we took a Nile River cruise. Oh, wow. Which was pretty fabulous. So we love to travel and learn when we travel. I really love history. So learning the history of the places that we go to and, and visit is always interesting and fascinating. But yeah, the job is pretty busy. So there's not not a lot of free time.
1: Yeah, I I love travel as well. And I really hope that things can move to a direction where we can go and travel and go to meetings again. Because one of the really wonderful things about being an academic pathologist and trying to teach and educate was the opportunity to travel to different places, to different meetings, meet colleagues from around the world, around the country, and share knowledge and network with them. And I really miss that because I think even as the virtual platforms have given us an opportunity to connect with people worldwide who might not have had the opportunity to travel to these meetings in person previously, I really miss seeing people in person. And I think the virtual Virtual platforms are great. I believe very, very strongly that virtual connections are real connections, but it is really challenging to try to attend a virtual meeting. And then also, you know, you know, take care of uh, my kids and unload the dishwasher and be on service and answer pages. And I think that I have about reached my limit for multitasking during this past <laughs> year.
2: Well, you have to know when to say no, Sarah.
1: Yeah, I know. I'm working on that. I really, I, I am working on that. And I think it's a skill we can all work on.
2: Yeah, we really miss that face-to-face interaction with people. It's just not quite the same. Giving grand rounds by, by Zoom just doesn't quite make it
1: Exactly. Any words of advice for our aspiring pathologists, pathologists who are interested in getting involved in organized
2: medicine, pathologists who are going to take the boards, you know, if we close us off on some of that. Be proud to be a pathologist, enjoy your life, enjoy your profession because it is wonderful and it is rewarding. As far as getting involved, some advice that I was given by a senior pathologist early on in my career was volunteer to do something that nobody else wants to do. And you'll be greatly appreciated. You'll it will, you know, help you in in the long run. And that has certainly worked for me. I remember when our hospital was doing a fun drive for their foundation and Nobody likes asking other people for money, but you know I, I learned how to do it and to do it in a way that people appreciated rather than felt put upon. So doing the hard things with residents, I always said, get out of your comfort zone because that's how you learn and that's how you grow. So to our residents and fellows, go beyond your comfort zone and you will become a better person and a better pathologist. Again, I love pathology. I love my profession. I love the people in my profession and uh, being able to interact with them. So it's been a real uh, honor and privilege to talk with you today, Sarah.
1: Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for coming on to the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for all you've done to lead the way for pathology in the House of Medicine and work on innovations in pathology certification to make it better, more seamless, more productive for all of us. So thank you
2: so much. Well, thank you. You're welcome.
0: for the free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link and be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.